What's up, guys? Welcome back to another episode of the Blockash Podcast, episode 382. Today, I have a tokenomics expert, Chris, with FinDOS on the show to talk about the importance and the future of tokenomics and what that can mean for, for society and the various ways that it may create um, very helpful solutions for everybody. We'll also talk about blockchain in Bulgaria a little bit. We'll talk about FinDOS and some of the services they offer. Um, Chris, welcome to the show. Uh, it's a pleasure to have you here, and I'm excited to have a conversation with you today on tokenomics and to dive a little bit deeper into it. How are you doing? Absolutely, and uh, thank you for having me. I think that uh, we can we can present some quite interesting topics here. Uh, before we dive into it and, and get into the the nitty gritty on it, what is um, what's your background like? I think people are going to be very curious to know a bit more about yourself and maybe what you've done prior to working in the Web3 space on tokenomics in particular. Sure, absolutely. You know, with with the risk of losing uh, some of your some of the listeners, I come from traditional finance, so I have spent uh, 13 years in traditional finance uh, as uh, data scientists in various financial institutions. So either banks or lending companies and essentially by being a data scientist i was doing machine learning ai models budgeting and forecasting and uh, eventually this also is what uh, drove me to crypto i was looking at okay in crypto there is a lot of data it is easily available there is a lot of analyze to analyze a lot of economics so i was naturally drawn to it what drew you to the data side of things? Were you always interested in the numbers and economics traditionally and, and then that kind of crossed over for you? Pretty much, yes. I think that at uh, the beginning of everyone's career, it's a little bit harder. You know that sometimes it's more about what uh, the situation is and where you are drawn to early on rather than what you necessarily choose to happen for for yourself so with me i started working in the card department of a bank and originally i was just putting uh, cards into envelopes to be uh, emailed to to clients and then later on i started helping with the issuing of the cards analyzing card transactions and just looking at uh, the whole whole huge amounts of data which is there when it comes to to client transactions and then uh, gradually transitioned into the data science and uh, data analytics uh, role, little by little. What was your first experience with blockchain? Like, when did you encounter it for the first time, and how did it kind of draw you in and pique your interest into wanting to do what you're doing now? I think it was it was quite a while ago. I believe somewhere 2014, somewhere around there, where a friend of mine was telling me, you know what, I I want to start a business. There is this thing where you can take computers and you can mine those coins, and then uh, you can you can get money for them, and uh, they cost certain amount. I think that back in 2014, it was like uh, Bitcoin was still in the hundreds. Uh, uh, in terms of price, and uh, this was the first time that uh, piqued my interest, and I started to double a little bit to, I, I can't call it invest, I was just buying different coins and doing a little bit of day trading because it was 
quite interesting for me. Uh, then I had a great uh, career opportunity. I spent two years in China and this was a very big step professionally for me. And during this time, I had no time for crypto at all, to be perfectly honest. And finally, after I uh, concluded my uh, journey in China for two years, then I decided to make the jump and move full time into crypto. So what are you doing now? What's FinDOS exactly? Like what are some of the things you guys are trying to accomplish there? Uh, sure. And I'll start a little bit further back to give you an, an idea of what we are doing. Uh, first, very simply put, uh, FinDAS is a tokenomics consulting company, but how did we come about? Uh, back in 2017, I had just finished my work in China. I was pretty burned out, to be perfectly honest, and I was looking to do something for, for myself. And I was starting to get back into crypto. I remember I had a month of vacation, and after that, I took a course, like very intensive course, one month of solidity programming because I just wanted to understand the nitty gritty of, of crypto. And gradually I started working with uh, various crypto projects, which back then I used to find on Upwork and uh, just helping various projects which were looking to launch into crypto with various things. I did a little bit development and programming early on, but really the thing which stuck with me was working with data and helping projects. Uh, structure their financials and token allocations. And really where this came from was that as soon as I started working in uh, crypto and having more involvement with various projects, I noticed that pretty much everyone was just copy pasting what somebody else was doing. So somebody had certain allocations, the other project copies the same ones. They had certain monetary and fiscal policies. Again, somebody just copies them. And because I'm a data scientist, I has always uh, approached things from a data-driven perspective, meaning that I wanted to take data, analyze it, and then come up with the best solution. And really, this was the first goal of Pindas to provide data-driven tokenomics. So not something which is copied from somewhere, but something which is bespoke designed for the project itself based on the data which the project has and the expectation which it has. This was the first goal of Pindas. And the second goal came about in the DeFi summer of 2021. At this point in time, we were one of the very few tokenomics providers out there, and we worked with so many projects. And very quickly, it became, became apparent that too many tokenomics out there are structured for the benefit of VCs and not for the benefit of the projects, meaning that the, the VCs get a great deal. They get a lot of tokens early on, and when the token launches to the public, usually the token gets dumped. And uh, Essentially, this is when we saw so many hockey sticks of tokens that go up and then all the way down. So the second goal of Findus became sustainable tokenomics. So uh, the goal of designing uh, tokenomics in such a way that it is not just there for the launch, not just there for the first year, but there for the next 10, 20 and 30 and so on years. What's important about tokenomics and why is it important that we get tokenomics right? Quite often when we talk about blockchain projects, the token is the lifeblood of the system. It is a way that you bring the community together, you incentivize your community, 
it is like a great marketing budget in case you manage it well. If you don't manage it well, usually you might get to do a raise when there is a hype cycle. You might get to make some profit off the tokens, but then the, the community might get uh, disenfranchised or disappointed with you. But if you do it properly, there are so many projects which uh, I would say in traditional finance, maybe they would have raised a million or two, but because they have solid tokenomics, instead they have budgets in the tens and hundreds of millions via their treasuries, via their token launches. So it is just a very, very efficient way for uh, projects to have a lot longer uh, runway. I imagine it's also you know vital for token economies and for ecosystems to have a strong tokenomics model too so that nothing breaks and nothing gets too expensive um and then there's always a clear like um you know stock to flow ratio for how much supply and 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 the value associated with that do you guys kind of work on some of that stuff as well maybe for projects or companies looking to launch tokens other than just the um uh, value proposition to to raise funds uh, absolutely. And uh, pretty much what you just mentioned is the core of what we are doing since, again, in order to raise, when a project comes to us, uh, I quite often tell them, guys, if you're just looking to raise money with the token, you don't need our help. Again, you can just see what is popular out there. You can go ahead, you can copy a tokenomics, you can copy a vesting schedule, you can copy a token sale and just do the same. Really what we focus on and with every project that comes to us is we start from their business model. We understand the business model. We understand the, what the project is doing. We understand where the cash flow will come within the token, whether it's collection of fees, whether the token is used in order to sell and be used as a payment method. So really we start from analyzing the potential cash flows, the potential use cases, then around this, we build monetary and fiscal policies. We structure sustainable inflation patterns, sustainable reward patterns. And I would say the very, very last thing is that we arrive at saying, okay, then this token can raise this, um, this kind of money and it can be valued at this or that much just because there is a solid business case behind it. Oh, quite too often we get projects like meme coins coming to us and asking us, okay, can you do tokenomics? And usually the answer is, guys, we cannot really do tokenomics for meme coins quite simply because there is no underlying business model and we really focus on the business model at hand. What do you think makes for a good tokenomics model? Do you look to model it maybe after a traditional economic model that might have existed and that has a track record of, you know, decades or hundreds of years that has performed well? Or do you look at a golden child like Bitcoin, for example, and try and take what works from that and apply it or something else within the Web3 ecosystem? Just kind of curious if there's like um, something that you think you know, working in tokenomics that works better than others? To be honest, the answer to your question is that there are both things from traditional finance and there are things which we are looking at what currently other projects are doing. Uh, when we talk about things like trying to value a token, to evaluate what is its fair value, to try to understand what it is potential market cap and everything else, we generally look at traditional finance metrics, things like multiples, things like economic theories, 
things like discounted cash flow analysis to try to understand what is the potential of the token. Now, obviously, multiples in the crypto world are very different from multiples in traditional finance. If we talk about, uh, you know, uh, price, uh, uh, price to equity or, or revenue and everything like that, usually the multiples in crypto are quite a bit higher than those in traditional finance. When it comes to the pure monetary and fiscal policies that a token has, now we usually rely a lot more on understanding what other tokens have done successfully and what works. One great example is, for example, the VE locking, which Curve has, which is not directly applicable in traditional finance. We won't find anywhere this kind of uh, think where you're saying, you know, what if you lock your equity for a lot longer time, we are going to give you more equity or, you know, more voting rights. It just works a little bit different in traditional finance. Uh, other things, uh, when we are talking about standalone blockchains, then the situation is yet again completely different. There we are not so much talking about incentivizing the community. When we talk about layer one blockchains, we are talking about security, trying to understand how do we make sure that it is more uh, valuable for any kind of participant to act in accordance to the network rules and not to, and not to attack it instead. So really depends from project to project on what you want to incentivize and how. But broadly speaking, when we are talking about monetary and fiscal policies, we rely more on what other projects are doing and try to understand what works in the crypto world. When we talk about valuation metrics and broader macro perspective, we rely also on traditional economic theories and valuation methods. Is there a security element that's also important when designing a good tokenomics model? Like, do you have to take into account, um, you know, preventing a potential hack or a potential misstep in the tokenomics that could lead to, you know, duplicate payments or things that could happen if someone wanted to fork a project? Like, do you have to consider those types of things as well when you're designing these things out to make sure that they're meticulous enough that, a bad actor can't take advantage of the system. Now, things like double spends and other things which you mentioned, they are more related to the technical implementation of the token. But usually at the beginning of every project, we try to understand what are the requirements of the client and whether they want to do something which has already been done before and have something which is well established and everybody knows how it works. And then the risks of this being attacked are a lot lower because usually this is something which has been tested over and over again. Or whether the client wants something very new and very novel to economic mechanic, in which case it's usually that the first one through the door gets shut. So that's something that we always communicate that, sure, we can do something very new, very interesting, very different, but keep in mind that this would also mean that it is untested and the exploits are, the chances of exploits are a lot higher. Things that normally we have to consider in a more elaborate designs when we talk about DeFi products are things like, is the project and the tokenomics susceptible to flash loan attacks, for example? This is a place where tokenomics modeling can again come into play and try to understand if there is a very complex project which has staking and restaking, if there are 
for example, liquidation thresholds, especially then you need to pay special attention whether there is an attack vector on uh, liquidations and flash loans. Have you done any tokenomics work for traditional Web2 companies or for governments um, in terms of maybe applying tokenomics to a product or a service that maybe they want to implement at some point? Um, on the government side, obviously, there's things like CBDCs and wanting to launch state-backed currencies or token economies for transit systems or for uh, the workforce or you know things like that. Whereas Web2 companies, maybe they want to implement an element into something that they're already doing. Maybe they're a gaming company. Um, maybe they want to offer a loyalty point system or... Um, you know, so small things like that as well. Have you guys, you know, had the chance to work on those kinds of things with those kinds of companies or entities? Um, or do you mostly focus on the Web3 space? To be honest, I would say maybe majority of our clients more than half are traditional Web2 companies which are looking to go into the Web3 space. So Interesting. actually quite, quite a lot of them are those kind of projects. So quite recently we have worked with quite a few projects around the carbon credit space where they want to cut, to tokenize carbon credits and create markets for carbon credits because uh, blockchain is a very good solution for this pretty much because the way that currently uh, no traditional carbon credit markets are not that transparent, quite fractionalized, and uh, you know they can rely on a lot more uh, transparency which blo blockchain can bring. Uh, a few years ago, we have worked with quite a lot of gaming companies, not all of which are specifically Web3, meaning more companies which wanted to have uh, games which are AAA games, and they're just looking into having a token element, an interoperability element where certain aspects of the game can be tokenized, either via NFTs or in-game gold can be, uh, can be tokenized. Uh, we have worked also with a couple of projects that uh, were working with uh, governments in different jurisdictions. And again, there the question is more around uh, privacy, customer data, storage, uh, licenses, registrations, and things like that. But those are quite few and far between, I would say, the government ones. It seems that Usually, government is uh, still quite quite far back in terms of uh, their blockchain adoption, but all other companies, I would say, quite uh, quite a few. And uh, the last thing which you mentioned, yes, uh, loyalty programs are becoming quite hot now. I was even recently reading that even uh, Visa is launching a Web3 loyalty program with uh, multiple merchants. So this uh, seems to be the a quite big narrative at the moment. Yeah, I've seen Visa doing a lot of stuff behind the scenes for the last few years, especially with, with uh, points and crypto and being able to transact with their cards and integrating with the space. So it's, it's kind of interesting to see all that happening and really know like actual use cases as of yet. Um, but I think it'll surprise a lot of people when some of these things come out. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I think that, uh, again, traditional finance companies and payment processors such as Visa and MasterCard are uh, definitely in crypto, still on the down low, but definitely looking into it. I know that each of those companies have quite big teams which are exploring this. Recently, again, I was reading somewhere that... Uh, 
Uh, Visa is going to provide off-ramp via quite a lot of its cars, which, to be honest, if it's indeed the case, it can be huge. So uh, definitely those companies are not asleep. They are, they are here. We are just not hearing about them so much as yet. Where do you guys get most of your clients from? Are they US-based, Europe-based, uh, globally, regionally? Uh, majority of our clients are US-based and Asia-based. To be honest, okay. I don't think it's a, a secret to anyone that Europe is quite lagging behind the world in terms of innovation. Still, the main export of Europe is uh, regulation and bureaucracy, as there is a running joke. And uh, there is too few investments in Europe. Uh, hopefully now with uh, Mika just around the corner and a lot of the big companies looking for place to settle where there is a lot more uh, regulation clarity, this might change a little bit, but still I would say majority of our clients either US-based, Canada-based or uh, out of Asia. It's funny because in the US, we say the opposite. We say the US is the one that's lagging behind in innovation and everyone's leaving um, and that there's more VC funding in Europe than there is even in the US. Um, but I don't know, maybe we both kind of look down on ourselves in, in both regions and maybe Asia is actually the one doing the best because I see so much development in Asia. Oh, absolutely. And they're so much more flexible. And if you look at places like the UAE, they already have, again, regulations, which are, I wouldn't call them pretty wax, but again, comprehensive regulations. So, you know, in case you want to launch there, what kind of requirements you have to meet. This is the VARO regulation there. So, and, and for any kind of company, which is just not a garage project, it's extremely important that they can launch in a jurisdiction where things are clear and when they know what to expect. Uh, usually, uh, the the running joke for the US is that it is a regulation by legislation, which is mm -hmm. possibly the worst possible setup for any kind of company, not knowing when you might get legislated and, and for what. Yeah, right now in the US, we have uh, regulation by enforcement, unfortunately. It, it, I. I would prefer it to be by legislation, but we have so many aggressive agencies and they're all like at this dogfight right now, this turf war over crypto uh, between the SEC and the CFTC. And um, it it's making it very difficult to classify this industry and in specific assets. Um, like tokenization would be, it is a nightmare in the US because you don't know what is considered property, what's considered currency, what's considered a security. Um, you know, how you can exchange those assets legally. And then there's so many loopholes and legalities that play into it. Um, it's, it's very problematic and it's pushed a lot of innovation out of the U.S. simply because of that alone. Um, and we've seen a little bit of headway in the court system with some of the stuff like the Ripple case last year was very important. Uh, we're seeing a lot of pushback with Coinbase fighting the SEC in the U.S. and that might have some positive outcomes. Um, but it's definitely created a lot of barriers that I don't think really need to be there, unfortunately. Um, but honestly, I prefer the legislation part of it. There's some stuff going through Congress that might get passed that might be actually very helpful. Um, there seems to be more uh, congressmen and women that are coming around to the idea of crypto and blockchain and some of the ways it can actually be used because there's this you know, bad narrative that it's only used for bad actors and laundering money and scams and Ponzi schemes. But 
you and I know that's not the reality. In fact, a public blockchain is much more transparent. And so it's kind of a silly narrative to put on the whole industry. Um, and it, that also kind of hurts innovation. So when you have people that are 60, 70 years old that are in Congress, it's hard for them to comprehend technology. And then you have aggressive agencies and you get a kind of a bad cocktail in the U.S. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I think that the narrative which you mentioned that crypto is mainly used for illicit activities is so old. I think that these days back to 2013 to 2014 and the Silk Road uh, debacle and everything else. But I think that people need to understand that crypto has gone such a long way since then. And given that we already have an ETF on Bitcoin, we have regulation coming out in Europe. This is just another way of proving that crypto is legit and it is here to stay. And it is just not something where criminals use it. It's such an old and useless narrative, to be honest. What's the thought around blockchain where you're based right now? You're in Bulgaria, correct? Correct. Uh, unfortunately, uh, the main thing that uh, we are known in Bulgaria is uh, with the OneCoin project. If you remember it a while ago, it was one of the biggest uh, scams that were out there, which again is quite unfortunate because there are so many great uh, blockchain projects coming out of Bulgaria. Uh, Regulation-wise, uh, we are a small and very uh, slow country when it comes to implementing regulation and when it comes to uh, innovations. But luckily, as the Mika becomes more broadly available in Europe, we have no choice but to adopt it as well. Uh, I was recently talking with a Bulgarian lawyer. She specializes in crypto and she told me something very funny is that uh, uh, Bulgaria is a great uh, jurisdiction for crypto because even if you get something wrong, wrong, the fines are so very small. So usually I know it sounds a little bit funny in this kind of regard, but sure, if you are going to get things wrong, uh, get them wrong in a place where, you know, you would have to pay $20,000, for example, right. for a fine and not $2 million. Uh, so, yeah, makes a little bit of a difference. But apart from that, we have uh, quite a great crypto community here. Uh, we have a few development uh, companies which are world class and they are of Bulgaria. For example, LimeChain, they are Bulgarian developers and they have been heavily involved with multiple projects. And I believe the Hedera Hashgraph as well. We have, for example, Nexo, which is a quite big uh, crypto lender, which is also out of Bulgaria. So some quite, quite uh, interesting uh, projects coming out of the out of the country. Yeah, I'm familiar with Hedera, obviously, and Nexo too, and LimeChain. Those are some heavy hitters. So that's pretty good. Um, do you guys see a lot of Bulgarian citizens that are interested in it? Like, is there any demands or desire to have crypto like in the economy and to use it or are they just kind of like eh, <laughs> tech is tech or bulgaria is a little is still quite a conservative country i would put it in this way and uh very few people understand crypto still i think that first we have a quite low financial literacy let's start from there I'm not talking about crypto just talking about investments in general when you talk to somebody in Bulgaria about the investments, they understand buying a house or buying an apartment. This is the, the level of understanding when somebody says an investment. Still, if we talk about the stock market, maybe the younger people are 
participate, but I would be very much surprised if we have more than 15 to 20 percent participation. When it comes into crypto, it's only the youngest people, and even they sometimes have the narrative, oh, crypto, so it's you, you know, you're scamming somebody, you're taking their money. Unfortunately, there is still this narrative here, and it's still not penetrated well enough apart from uh, you know the people who really understand uh, finance and this was actually quite good surprise for me because recently i was talking with a few accelerators in bulgaria a few uh, vc investors which typically don't have a lot to do with crypto but they were starting to realize that crypto is here to stay and they wanted to understand more on how they can participate how they can run proof of concepts and i think that it all starts from there from having those uh people who are so important to the community like entrepreneurs and, and angel investors adopt it and then after that i believe more and more people will adopt it as well what do you think is the most exciting country in the region there in the european region for web3 if you're an entrepreneur you're a startup you're looking for a favorable jurisdiction or a place where there's a lot of excitement and similar web3 companies kind of coming together is there a specific country that comes to mind that's maybe um probably doing the most when it comes to web3 funny enough and this was something which i noticed recently is that there is a huge surge of registrations under mika in poland I believe that uh, they have done a lot to have it uh, easy for crypto projects to incorporate there and to register there. So this is the recent movement which I'm seeing. Uh, apart from that, um, Euront is from our northern neighbors of uh, Romania. So there they also have a quite good uh, crypto community. And I think that Euront is still uh, going strong. So I would say that those are the two core uh, countries which I'm seeing uh, recently pop up. Last question before we start to wrap up. What do you think the future of tokenomics looks like and what kind of societal impacts do you see tokenomics having? Because um, obviously it can be applied beyond Web3. You you work with these kinds of people too and Web2. Um, but you know, going into the near future, whether it's five years down the line, 10 years down the line, you know, however long, what do you see that impact being of having tokenomics um, applied to society in different kind of ways? A few, a few different things here. First, where do I see tokenomics going? Uh, still, tokenomics is very much narrative driven. And for example, like people want to see fixed token supplies. People want to see certain things when they look at the tokenomics. I expect that as time moves forward, we are going to see a lot more inflationary tokens, a lot more tokens which uh, embrace uh, uncertainty and embrace that there needs to be a more dynamic way in which they are structured. When it comes to society, and, and this is a very bold prediction, but I also feel quite uh, a bit into the future, you know, that currently we are bound by the currency of the country where we are operating. Tokenomics gives us the possibility that we operate within a currency of the products that we are using, within the currency of the services that we are using and creating various uh, micro ecosystems around that. And I believe that in the future, more and more companies which 
offer a together an end-to-end -end service so there are multiple companies within an area they might adopt a common token a common currency in order to streamline those processes and maybe this would be exposed to their customers as well so i really see over time communities coming together around certain currencies which are optimized for the particular use cases of what they are trying to do if there's companies out there, individuals, projects that are looking for the type of services that you guys are offering, where would you direct them if they wanted to get in contact? Uh, just go to our website, which is uh, www.pindas.org. And uh, the, the first thing you're going to see a book of reconsultation button. So we don't charge for just uh, talking with us. So please go ahead. We have a lot of people just booking a call, wanting to talk about economics, wanting to run something by us on what they think or what they uh, want to do. We are always happy to do that. So don't be shy. Go there, book a call. Uh, you will talk directly with me. And uh, yeah, we can, we can have a chat and we are always happy to help out anyone who is looking to find their footing in the, in the Web3 space. Awesome. Chris? Thank you for taking the time to come on the show today. Uh, it's been a really good episode. Really dove into tokenomics. I think for the first time on the podcast of all the topics I've covered with so many different people at this point, I think tokenomics, this is the first one where we've really highlighted it specifically. So um, this will be very interesting for a lot of people and a lot of good information and gems of knowledge in here. So thank you for taking the time uh, to share and really educate people. Uh, glad to be here. It was a pleasure for me. So also thank you for having me. Of course. Uh, take care. Uh, have a great rest of your day and we'll talk again soon.